Good morning, friends. Are you what people might call a liberal giver? Well, in Luke 6.38, it says, Given it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, I've been teaching through the Gospel of Luke for about uh, 21 weeks now. And I cover a chapter a week. And we've, I've discovered some really interesting things teaching. One of those is this saying of Jesus that's pretty well known, but we don't often talk about it. In fact, looking at a couple of different commentaries, I, I found not more than one or two sentences basically devoted to this verse. And I don't remember ever really hearing a, an entire sermon on Luke 6:38. And I kind of find that interesting because most of us have known these words for years. I mean, many people who don't know much about the Bible have certainly heard the phrase, give and it will be given to you. Now, it's not quite as famous as the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but it's close. Yet we ex we've rarely examined these words closely, so they've been kind of a, a proverb or a Christian motto that we repeat without thinking. But today I want to discuss what these words really mean and how they apply to our lives. Now, Luke 6.38 is a call for Christian liberal, liberalism, and that's kind of an unusual word for us to use because in my particular denomination or my silo, it's pretty conservative in its theology. And we don't make any bones about what we believe in in almost every area. We're not what we call moderate. We're not what we call middle of the road. We are unashamedly conservative in doctrine and morality and practice. Now, all of that is well and good, but it does not encompass every aspect of the Christian life. There are times and places where liberalism ought to be the rule, and one of those, I think, is in Christian stewardship. In our text, Jesus calls his disciples to be liberals in the area of giving. Well, let's take a look at the background of this promise, and it kind of helps you uh, to know that this is part of the famous Sermon on the Mount. Now, you can find a much longer version in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. The shorter version is found here in Luke 6. Now, our text is part of the larger section that begins in verse 27, stretches all the way through verse 38. Now, all 12 verses here deal with the area of human relationships, especially uh, how to get along with difficult people. You might want to read that one. Uh, he, he might call this section love in action or Christian kindness. Uh, it's love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, give to everyone who asks you. And his teaching climaxes with the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Now, in Jewish law, this was often found in the negative. They would say, do not do to others what you do not want done to you. However, by Jesus stating the command positively, he offered a revolutionary kind of proactive way of treating other people. We're not simply to avoid, re avoid retaliation. We're to treat other people as we want to be treated. And the next few verses give us five reasons for these commands. He said, you must go beyond what sinners do. You'll win a great reward from God. You'll prove to be sons of God. You'll reflect God's character. You'll be treated as you treat others. <clears throat> now that brings us to our key verse. And to get the understanding of this, we kind of need to know that it's set in the context of a Middle Eastern market where buyers and sellers haggle over prices, quality, and amount. And it's still often repeated in third world countries. Now, I lived in Hong Kong for three years. I've done mission work in Nigeria, Haiti, India. I've seen a lot of these open markets. I mean, people bring stuff to sell. Uh, but what I remember is going down to buy rice in the market in Stanley, living in Hong Kong. And once you kind of haggle over the price, 
you generally bring your own container, a big bucket, a bowl, or whatever. And then the seller scoops to fill the container. It's exactly at this point that the process gets rather fascinating. In Jesus' day, and i got to tell you, it's really the same way when we bought rice in Hong Kong years ago, four stages of taking care of them. First, the seller fills the container to the top. Then he presses the grain down, fills some more. Third, he shakes the container, or when we bought the rice, he would bang that container down on the counter so the grain would settle and then would fill in some more. And finally, he fills the container until it overflows a bit. Now, back in Jesus' day, the seller would catch the overflow grain and pour it into a little pouch he carried in his or her robe. And that pouch acted kind of as a carry-all bag so the man or woman could bring the food home for the market. Now, in short, Jesus is describing a situation that took place every time somebody went to shop. Now, it's pretty unusual <coughs> for us to do that today because <coughs> everything we go to is already measured, sealed, and wrapped in shrink wrap. It's also got a label on the outside that says something like, content sold by weight, not by volume. But in Jesus' day, grain was sold by volume and not by weight. And that's why the verse mentions that the grain was pressed down and shaken together. Now, with that as background, we might ask this very simple question. What precisely is Jesus teaching us here about Christian giving, Christian stewardship? Now, I think there are pretty two, two pretty simple answers to that question. When you give, he gives back to you. And God uses the same measure you use, or to put it in modern-day vernacular, if you're going to be stingy, God's going to appear to be stingy in return. If you're generous, God will be generous in return. Now, before I go any further, let me say that I realize this teaching is not often heard in conservative circles. And for various reasons, this teaching is more likely to be found in other kinds of evangelical churches, and then it gets way into the stuff we call prosperity gospel, but I'm not going there today. Now, you may, in fact, wonder if I'm interpreting this verse correctly. But before you jump to any conclusions, let's take a look at the most famous teaching in the New Testament regarding Christian giving. You find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 11. This is Paul speaking. He says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, I got to tell you, that's a principle drawn from the farm. He goes on, sow a little, reap a little, sow a lot, reap a lot. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Greek word for cheerful, hilaros, hilarious. God loves a laughing in the aisles kind of giver. Now, that's the application of all of us. Now, when your worship assembly takes the offering, they don't put a gun to your head. It's the place where the buckets are passed. That'd be illegal, wouldn't be very ethical. And by the way, the church I attend doesn't even take an offering during the course of the worship service. Now, there are places you, when you enter where you can just drop your offering in. See, we want people to give because they want to, not because they have to. Now, Paul goes on and he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Did you notice four alls in one verse? All grace. All things, all times, all that you need. That's the source, the extent, the duration, and the result. Now, this is God's promise to those who dare to become generous givers. You're going to have everything you need. Maybe not everything you want, but God will not let generous givers go unrewarded. As it's written, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now, now, he who supplies seed to the sower, bread for food, will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest of your righteousness. 
you'd be made rich in every way. That's what, what he goes on to say. Now, have you ever been someplace where you heard an appeal for money and you felt like you wanted to give? I've been to a few places like that, but you just thought at the time, I can't really afford to do that. Now, maybe the call came from a missionary you respect or from a school you support or from a church you greatly love. Maybe you know of a need you wish to do, you could do something. And what do you do when you're running short on money, but you see a need and you want to get involved? Now, I think the answer is pretty clear. You give whatever you can. You just trust God to take care of you. It may not be a lot. It might be pretty small. The amount doesn't really matter. What matters is the attitude of the heart. You see, both in Luke 6:38 and 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 to 11, God specifically promises to take care of his givers, his people who practice good stewardship. And he promises to give back to you in accordance with the measure of generosity you use in your giving in the first place. Now, in essence, what God is saying, friends, you go first. And I got to tell you, most of us don't like that. We want God to go first. We say, you give me the money and then I'll give. God says, oh, I've given you my word. Isn't that enough? And we reply, well, your word is pretty nice, but I'd like some cash to go along with it. And all of that, God says, trust me, you give, I'll take care of you, and I promise you'll never be disappointed. Well, now that we kind of know what Luke 638 means, it's important to understand the principle behind the promise. See, everything Jesus says rests in the character of God. When Jesus said it will be given to you, he based it on the promise, uh, on the truth of who God is. I mean, God is a generous, benevolent God who loves to give good things to his children. Because it's in his nature to give, he'll always give us to us uh, more than we will to him. This, to me, is the first law of Christian giving. You just plain simple count, can't outgive God. Now, I love Psalm 103. It's, it's called the uh, Thanksgiving Psalm. And this is verses 3 to 5. I'm going to read from the King James Version here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, I love that last phrase. It's a wonderful reminder. Forget not all his benefits. Now, in case you've forgotten them, David goes on and lists five of them in verses 3 to 5. He forgives all your sins. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from destruction. He crowns you with love and compassion. He satisfies your desires with good things. Now, try this sometime. Go find a Bible concordance and look for all the things that the Bible says that God gives to his people. I just, let me give you just a short list. Victory, peace, hope, life, success, what is good, wisdom, knowledge, understanding, strength, health, discretion, wealth, honor, power, love, children, a heart to know him, songs in the night, joy in the morning, answer to prayer. And I go on and on and on and on. I didn't even mention his greatest gift. It's found in John 3.16. You know it. For God so loved that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Did you get that? God so loved that he gave the whole truth of the gospel in six words. Have you ever wondered why God loves sinners? Or have you ever looked in the mirror, especially if they're doing something really stupid, and said, you know, if I were God, I wouldn't love a person like me. I kind of think most of us have had that experience because most of us have really kind of fouled up and felt ashamed and embarrassed any number of times. I mean, deep inside sometimes we doubt that God's love because we know the truth about who we really are. I mean, why does God love people like you and me? Now, I know of only one answer to that question. He loves us because that's the kind of God he is. It's in his nature to love sinners. And I say this kind of reverently. He could not stop loving us even if he wanted to. 
His love for us is so eternal and his character is so faithful that his love does not depend on anything we say or do. He loves us just the way we are because that's just the way he is. Now, how does this truth about God's character apply to Christian giving? Let me suggest four answers. One, you can't outgive God. Two, God will be no one's debtor. Three, he invites us to trust his word. And four, he challenges us to put him to the test. When God says, you go first, we say, uh, no, you go first. But I did go first, he says. I went first when I gave my son to die on the cross for you. Now, the principle behind this The principle behind this, sorry for the momentary loss here. The, the truth behind the principle is there is one final area that, we, that must be addressed. The truth behind the principle that you can't outgive God. Now, in the last couple of years, I've become convinced that this truth is the central issue of life. Now, I'm speaking of the goodness of God, and it comes from a question I've been asked a lot. What has God been teaching you lately? Well, this is not an easy question under any circumstances. So what's my answer? Well, my answer is I've been learning a lot lately that I've still got a lot to learn about God. Now, even though I've been in the ministry in one form or another for 50 plus years, there's so much I still don't know about God. And at this point in my life, I'm more aware of what I do not know than what I do know. But if I had to give an answer, I would say that my number one lesson in the last months has been primarily about God's goodness. I don't think a day has gone by that the question, is God good, has not been on my mind. And I go back to the refrain I learned on my trip to Nigeria a year ago, years ago, when the pastor cried out, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. And the people would respond and say, and we are witnesses. Now, I fear that some of us, and I include myself in this, have often constructed a God of the good times. When our prayers are answered and life is going our way, we say God is good. Does that mean when our prayers are unanswered and the cancer returns that God is no longer good? I mean, if your God is only good during the good times, then your God is not the God of the Bible. Now, more and more, I'm convinced that this is the fundamental question of life. Is God good and can he be trusted to do what is right? If the answer is yes, then we can face the worst of life, that worst, worst that life has to offer. If the answer is no, then we're no better off <laughs> you know, than the heathens. I wouldn't have the strength to get out of bed every day. Now, you may be asking, what does all of this have to do with our giving? Now, you may agree with everything I've said, just said and still wonder what this has to do about stewardship. Now, I'm going to offer you four quick answers. First of all, generous givers are not the people with a large bank account, but with people who have a large view of God. Now, we often look at people who give generously and think they must be rich. But it's not necessarily so. Poor people are often very generous. Rich people can be very stingy. Generosity has nothing to do with how much money we have. But it has everything to do with your view of God. If your God is big, you'll be generous. If he's small, you'll be stingy. If you struggle with your giving, it might be because your God is too small. The bigger your God, the easier it will be for you to give. Second, when we give generously, <clears throat> we do so because we truly believe God will reward us one way or the other. Now, note what the text says, given it will be given to you. Not might be given, or may be given, or could be given, but will be given. Our only problem comes with the, our, our only problem comes with the nature of God's reward. 
Too often we focus on money or material gain as if these were the only way God could reward us. And that's where, you know, prosperity gospel kind of goes off the rails. But you see, friends, 2 Corinthians 9 speaks of receiving a bountiful harvest of righteousness. See, God's blessings, often they're material, but his best blessings can't be added up on your pocket calculator. So how does God reward his generous children? Well, it might be with money. It comes with answered prayer, with deep inner joy, with new friendships, with more opportunities to give, with a new revelation of his power in your life, with amazing miracles, or with the peace that passes all understanding. The second thing is I think generous givers understand the shovel principle. I wish I could remember who taught me this. It's one of the best explanations of Luke 638 I ever heard. And it says, I shovel it out and God shovels it in. And guess what? God's got a bigger shovel than I do. Here's the third thing. Generous giving is a testimony to an unbelieving world that our God is alive and well today. Generous giving is an excellent testimony because it's a way to say to the watching world, there's a lot more where that came from. The only one we say it, we're we're not talking about our investment strategy. We're talking about the God of the universe who has promised to care for his children. I said earlier that Christianity is a giving religion. Now, Paul certainly thought so. When he reached the end of all he wanted to say about giving in 2 Corinthians 9, his mind went back to the greatest gift of all, the gift of his son. In verse 15, Paul calls Jesus God's indescribable gift. I think he means to say something like this. If I were to go to the bank and withdraw all of my money and give it away, and if I were to sell my car and give the money to the poor, and if I were to give my clothes of my back and the food of my table to world missions, if I were to give everything I had and then gave myself as someone's slave, I wouldn't have given as much as God did when he gave his only begotten son. You see, friends, God can never owe me anything. I can never outgive him. When I come to the end of my philanthropy and I begin to pat myself on the back for being, you know, a wonderful person, God bids me to look at the cross and see the bleeding Son of God. And then I realize I know nothing of what real giving is all about. Jesus is God's indescribable gift. Anything I do pales in significance by comparison. Therefore, I'm not going to hold back. I don't want to be stingy. I will be a generous giver. Time, talents, treasure. If God really did so love the world that he gave his only begotten son, then I will follow him and give whatever I can. I can do no less. Lord Jesus teaches that we only keep what we give away. We've tried so hard sometimes to hoard things only to have them slip through our fingers. We've tried stinginess, Lord, and it didn't work. Teach us to be generous. We thank you that we have everything we need and more besides. Open our eyes to see what you're doing in this world and save us from spending our lives building castles of sand. Help us to give as you did, bleeding and dying for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Until next time, friends, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion. God bless.